We're just going to have a testimony time. <laughs> we are in the Gospel of Luke. So take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And today we're going to go back to John the Baptist. Uh, that's how Luke lays out the first three chapters of his Gospel. He starts off with John the Baptist, comes back to Jesus. John the Baptist flips back to Jesus, so on and so forth. And we now come back to John the Baptist and the launching or the starting of his public ministry. So when you get to Luke chapter 3, I want us to read those first two verses. Several names are in there. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of of Ituria, and the region of Traconitis, uh, and uh, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, he didn't know the Roman Empire extended to Texas back in those days, but it and Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now when you look at those two verses, the important emphasis is on this phrase. This is, the, this is the subject and the verb. This is what it's all about. The word of God came to John. See, that's really the sentence. Everything else around that sentence, the word of God came to John, is supplemental. So when you see that phrase, the word of God came to John, immediately, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you think of a prophet, because many of the uh, minor prophets, and even some of the major prophets, like Zechariah, uh, or like uh, Jeremiah, has a phrase similar to this, the word of God came to Jeremiah, the word of God came to Isaiah, the word of God came to, and so what this is doing is identifying John the Baptist, and he lets you know that he's talking about John the son of Zacharias, so that you know he's talking about John the Baptist came to John. Now the last time we saw John was in Luke 180, which simply said the child grew. Remember that? The child grew and uh, was in the desert. That was a long time ago. Years have passed by now. And so, how many years? Well, it says in the beginning of verse 1, it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So Tiberius came to reign somewhere around 14 AD. So this is somewhere around 29 AD. Somewhere in that vicinity, John launches his public ministry. Now, this opening verse, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, puts John's public ministry, the start of John's public ministry, not only in a chronological order, but it puts his public ministry in a political context. He came, became a prophet, and launched out publicly when certain people were in power. These were the political elites. These are people who oppose God's purposes. These are people who like the status quo. They don't want anyone rocking the boat. And you have Tiberius Caesar, and he's the emperor. He's the ruler of the entire Roman Empire. He was not a nice guy. He's the one who deported Jews from uh, Rome. And when uh, Sapphira, Aquila and Priscilla rather, 
were, they were kicked out of Rome, and they were kicked out of Rome by this man right here. And that's when they ended up in Corinth and Paul met them. Pilate, we know what he is. He was the governor of Judea. His headquarters was in Caesarea, but every time there's a Passover feast, he'd come down to Jerusalem, and he would be there because he knew there was going to be problems, and he was ready to squelch those problems. So that's Pontius Pilate. And then you have three kings. You have Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. And these are client kings. These are relatives of King Herod who died. And when he died, uh, he was a client king. The Roman Senate made Herod the king over all the Jews. They said, you keep the Jews in tow. And then he died. His power was distributed to different people. And these are the ones. These are client kings who do Rome's bidding. They are Jews, at least half Jews, some of them are full Jews, and they do Rome's bidding. And then in verse 2, and verse two it says, And Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. Now these are Jews. These are people that should be for the Jews. They should be working on behalf of the Jews. They should be representing the Jews to God. Annas was the high priest from like 6 to uh, 15 A.D. And then he went out of office. And he began a dynasty. And his five sons and one son-in-law became the high priest, one right after another. And Caiaphas is reigning as high priest at the time of John the Baptist, and he is the son-in-law of Annas. Now, these high priests collaborated with Rome. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means Rome wanted their taxes collected. The high priest made sure the taxes were collected. Rome wanted to make sure Jews didn't go and revolt against them. The high priest made sure the people were subservient to Rome. They kept things in order. And if the high priest couldn't, Rome would switch out and get another high priest. So these are people who are political elites, and they have something to gain by the status quo. And then the word of the Lord came to John in the midst of this political turmoil. And... Uh, as a result of that, uh, it means that these guys' days are numbered. It means that God's against them. God doesn't want the status quo. God's going to bring in his kingdom. And if God's bringing in his kingdom, that means they're out of a job. So that's what Luke wants you to see. He doesn't want you just to see the year that John launched out. He wants you to see the political context in which John launched out. And it said the word came to John when he was where? At the end of verse 2. In the wilderness. Now look back at chapter 1 and verse 80. The last time we saw John was in chapter 1 and verse 80. In fact, that's a... From verses 67 to 79 is a prophecy that his father gives, saying that he will be a prophet in verse 76. And then in verse 80 it says, So the child grew, became strong in spirit, and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation. What's this kid doing in the desert? A child growing up in a desert. That's not where his parents live. <coughs> but they've shipped him off to a desert. Now, what, why would you ship your child off to a desert? Day camp. <laughs> Day camp, that's right. <laughs> and if, if, in this situation, I mean, there are children that we, we might send to boarding school. You send to day camp, you send to boarding school. And in this situation, they probably sent him to some religious community that was out in the desert. Do you have any idea of anybody like that? 
Essenes. Yeah, you've heard of the Essenes, haven't you? And it's indeed possible that John the Baptist, as he was growing up, grew up in the midst of the Essene community near the Dead Sea. But while he was there in the wilderness, <laughs> the word of God came to him. And he realized that what the Essenes were teaching was not exactly right. So there is some evidence that John was involved in the Essene community, but he wasn't preaching their message. He was preaching the Lord's message. So you can get that from these first two verses if you look at the verses very carefully. Now look at verse 3. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 3. And he went into all the region around about the Jordan. Now we have a second geographical marker. The wilderness, next the Jordan. If I ask you about the desert or the wilderness and about Jordan, and you were a Jew, you would think of the Jews in the wilderness. And that represented the exodus, how God led them out of Egypt and they went into the wilderness. And then when Moses died, there was Joshua. And guess what Joshua did? He led them across the Jordan. So the wilderness would represent, in the Jewish mind, the exodus, deliverance. The Jordan would represent conquest, the promised land. And so here's a prophet. And when they hear the words wilderness and Jordan, all kinds of images come to their mind. And so he went to the region around about Jordan. And what was he doing? He was preaching. What was he preaching? Baptism of repentance. Now when you see that word repentance, that means to turn around. He was calling people to be baptized and make an about face. We call that turning around conversion. He was preaching a baptism and calling people to convert. Turn away from their allegiances to Rome. Turn away from doing all the things that the high priests were commanding them to do that God wasn't commanding them to do and give their allegiance fully to God. So that's what we have. It's a moral about-face. That's what repentance involves. An about-face, a change of behavior. Repentance without a change of behavior is not repentance. You can call it repentance, but it's not repentance. There are a lot of people who say repentance is just a change of mind. Well, I've got word, news for those people. <laughs> repentance is more than a change of mind. It's a change of behavior. It's conversion. Now notice he preaches baptism of repentance in verse 3. Now look at this next thing. For the remission of sins. There we are again. Here's where all the confusion comes in. If you just say baptism and repentance, we can get away with that. But when he starts adding this thing for the remission of your sins, that causes a lot of confusion. But... It didn't to the Jewish mind. Now let me say that the act of baptism alone could not produce remission of sin. He preached baptism of what? What's it say there? Repentance. Just the act of baptism alone is a ritual. It's worthless. People say, well, I got baptized, or I'm saying, that's worthless. It's not enough to be baptized. What do you have to do? Repent. There needs to be a conversion in the person's life. And that brings about the forgiveness of sins. And so that's what he's doing. He's calling people to be converted, show it forth through baptism, 
And he says, your sins will be forgiven. As it is written, verse 4, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, in other words, he came and preached out there in the wilderness, just like Isaiah the prophet said. And here's what the prophet said in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. What did he cry? Prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> that was my granddaughter. <laughs> you never heard me speak that loud in life. <laughs> okay, make his <laughs> make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough way is smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, you've all read that passage before. We don't need to go over it in great detail, but Isaiah the prophet said that when uh, Messiah would come, that he would send a forerunner, an advanced man, who would prepare for his way. And this is language, this is imagery, this is figures of speech, this language. When a real king came, he would have an advanced team go and make sure that all the rocks were, you know, the, the rocks were out of the highway so his horse wouldn't trip over the rocks. And if there was uh, bad terrain, they would level the terrain. And if there were crooked places, they'd make them straight and so on and so forth. And he's using this. But the advanced man for the Messiah isn't clearing the path physically. He's not clearing the brush away so the king can come through. He's making people's hearts straight. If you're crooked, he's going to make you straight. See, that's what he's doing. If you're a haughty, he's going to bring you low. He's going to humble you. That's what it takes to prepare the way for the Lord in your life. And so he's using a lot of imagery right there. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7. Now we have John's response to the people. A lot of people come out to be baptized. I want you to notice how John responds to the people. It's very interesting. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I know that when people come forward in our church to be baptized, we show their picture on the screen. We say, Welcome to First Baptist Church. And that's what every church in America does. But that's not how John responded to these people. He uh, calls them a brood of vipers. Now look at this, it's very interesting couple things I want you to see. In verse 7, multitudes came out. That means they took the initiative. They heard that he was out there. There was a prophet out there preaching. They came out to be baptized. We want to be baptized, they said. They volunteered. Okay? Not just one or two. They flocked. Okay? Second of all, he relates baptism. They came to be baptized. He relates it to fleeing the wrath to come. You see that? They figured if they could be baptized, they wouldn't be judged. Shows you how people were thinking. Baptism is related to escaping wrath. Okay? Third, look what he calls them. A brood of vipers. Now, a brood, if you say, well, we got a brood. Well, what a brood you've got. That means offspring. You are, a, you are children or offspring of poisonous snakes. 
Sounds a lot like what Jesus said when the Pharisees said, we have Abraham for our father. He said, no, you're the children of what? Of the devil. You're, you're a brood from the devil. So John says the same thing. And then he asks a question in verse 7. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now what in the world does he mean when he says that? Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? The way you interpret that question depends on how you look, where you put the emphasis uh, in that question. Do you put the emphasis on the pronoun who, or do you put the emphasis on the pronoun you? That's going to determine how, what the question means. If you put it on who, it, says, it sounds like this. Who warned you to escape the wrath to come? It wasn't me. You didn't get that from me. Who told you to come out here and be baptized? Who? Who? That's the emphasis. But watch this. If you put it on the word you, it means something different. Who told you to come out here and be baptized and flee the wrath to come? Who told you? And I think the emphasis is on the you. Okay? Because these are people who come out and want to be baptized and that's all they want, is just to be baptized. They think baptism, just going through the motions, the form, the ritual, is going to forgive their sins, and they're going to escape the wrath to come. And who do you think these you are? Well, it includes ordinary people, but it also includes some very powerful people. And they want to come out and just get baptized. So he gives them instructions. Look what he says in verse 8. Therefore... Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, notice there's no verb there, so you have to supply the verb. Therefore, look, you bear fruit worthy of repentance. That's why we know the emphasis is on the you. Look, therefore, if you want to be baptized, guess what it has to have with it? Fruits, what? Worthy of repentance. And don't say, we have Abraham as our father. See, that's what they said to Jesus. Well, we have Abraham as our father. He said, no, you're the children of the devil. So what he says is that baptism has to be accompanied by some sort of moral change. There has to be a character change. There has to be a conversion. True repentance involves conversion. That's a positive and a negative there. Positive. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. A negative. Don't begin to say. Don't even think about it. Here's what I want you to do. Let me see evidence of conversion. Show me some indication of conversion. Then I'll baptize you. Yeah, but I, don't even think about it. <laughs> don't even say don't begin to say to yourselves because he knew what they were saying well we have Abraham as our father what do we have to be you know, we're already children of God what do we have to go do some moral you know, change and then he gives them a warning warning number one is you can be replaced you can be replaced watch this for I say to you God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You can be replaced by a rock. 
<laughs> now, if he's using stones in a very figurative way, he might be saying to these Jews, you can be replaced by Gentiles. Remember when God's, how Peter and Paul, when they're speaking of the church, they talk about the church as a building that's being built up and we're living stones and we've become part of it. He could be talking with stones in the sense of people. Don't think that just because you're children of Abraham that gives you any advantage. God can raise up other stones. He can raise up Gentiles to praise him. You can be replaced. That's warning number one. It's not the only warning. There's another warning. Look at verse 9. Here's the warning of judgment. You can be judged. And even now, guess what? The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now, God's ready just to cut you right down. He's ready just to knock you right down. He's ready to plant another seed and build up another tree. Grow another tree. The axe is laid to the root. So that would be a warning. The judgment is imminent. Notice that. And even now, you see that? Even now, the axe is right there. He's ready to drop his judgment right on you. Even now. Why? Because they don't have what? Fruit. Worthy of repentance. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How many trees? Everyone. See, so baptism as an act, as an empty ritual, has no benefit whatsoever. God calls you to repent. Be converted. Show some evidence of your intent to have a changed moral life. Then you can be baptized. That's the only guarantee that you have. Now look at the people's response. Very interesting. Now, this is where it gets very, very interesting for me. So the people ask him, saying, what shall we do? Well, what do you want us to do? What do, what do you mean by good fruit? What do you, what you say repent, what do you want us to do to show that we have repented? That phrase, what must we do, is used eight times in Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles that Luke also wrote. Eight times that question is asked. It's one of Luke's most important questions. What does repentance look like? What are you, what are, what's required of us if we say we repent? Okay? How is it demonstrated publicly? So he answered. Now watch this. And he said, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. If you have two pieces of clothing, you can't wear them both at the same time, why don't you take one and give it to somebody who has how many? None. Okay? And then look what else he said. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Now when we talk about food and clothing, we're talking about necessities. And to give these necessities to somebody who has none, you're talking about helping the poor. So it's not saying, well, here's a person that's living on the margin. You know, they're living at a certain level. No, it's not that. It's to help the people who are poor and really are going to die and don't even have the basic necessities of life. See, if you're not willing to do that, 
John says, well, I'm not willing to baptize you because that would be a mark that you've been converted. <laughs> then look at verse 12. We have a second group that comes to it. The tax collectors came to be baptized. Hey, let's baptize us. And uh, after they heard him preach, they said to him, Teacher, well, what shall we do? And here's his response. Stop stealing. Uh, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Stop stealing. Uh, these were people who collected taxes. Most of these were Jews now, Jewish tax collectors. They probably collected toll taxes. And they charged based on wheels and all this kind of stuff. And he basically, and these guys would bid for the project. These were private businessmen who would bid, put a bid in with the government of Rome to collect taxes for a region. And Rome would say, okay, here's how much tax we want you to collect. We figure this is how many things go, uh, vehicles go down the highway, how many wheels turn on the highway per day. We expect this much. And so then they would charge a little extra so they could get fill their pockets and they'd send the rest to Rome. It's like a tax, it's like a, a debt collector. You know, there's companies that buy up debt. And if you owe a hundred dollars and you haven't paid Sears your hundred dollars, it's sent to the debt to a collector. And the collector says, Well, I'll buy that account for twenty-five bucks. Give Sears twenty-five bucks. And then what does that collector try to do? Get as much from you as he can. If you get 100, great. If he can, he'll take 90. If he can get 75, he'll take it. If he can get 26, he'll even take it. So this is what you have. Now, if he can't collect it, guess what he'll do? He'll sell it to somebody else for 1750. You know? He'd rather get 1750 than nothing. So then that person that's paid 1750 will try to get a little extra. And that's how it works. That's how it worked there. That's how they collected taxes. And they were skimming off the top. And they were saying to Rome, well, that, we didn't have that many wheels turned that day. And all these kinds of things. And so, look, here's what it means to repent. Don't collect more than was appointed you. Just do what's right. Do what's fair. Now look at verse 14. Likewise, soldiers ask him, saying, and what shall we do? Now, these are Jewish soldiers. These are soldiers probably who work for Herod. These are probably some sort of forces that just keep the people in tow. Make sure that there are no riots. They want to be baptized. Jewish soldiers want to be baptized. What shall we do? Verse 14, he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone. Don't act like a tough guy. Don't use your power and authority to scare people. Don't accuse people falsely. I know guys on the police department that do things like that. I had an uncle. I had an uncle who did both of these things on the police department. One time he worked in what was called back in Maryland the Taxi Cab Bureau. <clears throat> taxi Cab Bureau, what they did is they went around and watched the flags on the taxi cabs. Whether the, if the driver had a customer if he put the flag down and was charging or he's just getting some money on his own and putting it into his pocket rather than giving it to the cab company. Well, my uncle stopped the cab. He said, you're high flagging. You're not charging this customer. 
Therefore, you're not paying taxes and all of these things. He would do all that. And they say, well, how about if I give you half the fee? So he said, oh, okay, I'll take half the fee. I'll just, now, next time, make sure you do, do it right. <laughs> next time, you do it right, you know? And uh, on the police department, there were many guys that planted evidence on somebody. Accused them falsely. Now, they knew the guy was a crook. Whether, whether he committed that crime or not, it didn't matter. He should be in jail, so... We'll just plant evidence on him for this crime. Well, John says, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't accuse someone falsely in verse 14. Don't intimidate. Don't accuse someone falsely. And be content with your wages. Don't exhort, extort from people. So that's what he's saying right here. Don't force, don't accuse, and be happy with your wages. Now, very interestingly, he doesn't say to the tax collector, you have to quit your job. He doesn't tell the Jewish soldier resign his position, but he does say, be honest, be fair. Now one thing is that the instructions, what must we do, is different for each person. Did you notice that? It's different for each person. One is to give some clothes, one is to collect the right amount of taxes, another is not to threat. It's different for each person. But everyone has to do something that shows forth their repentance. So, you, uh, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus gets under conviction, repents. And he says, I'm a rich man, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give back half of all of my goods to the poor. And Jesus says, today salvation's come to your house. How can you make that statement? Because there was evidence of repentance. The rich young ruler. Lord, what must I do? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? He said, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. For you, it takes everything. Now, I'll tell you, this is, this is pretty strong teaching here, you know. Matthew was a tax collector. He said, I'll return fourfold that which I stole. So what you have is that repentance and conversion looks different. Now, Matthew didn't have to go out and return fourfold. Zacchaeus didn't have to give it back yet. But guess what? He said, that's what I'm going to do. That was his intention. John wants to see their intention. Are you willing to do it? If the person said, yes, that's how I will live, then John said, then I recognize that as real repentance, and then he would have baptized. But if they say, well, well, you know, well, you know, just can't you baptize me? I'm already a child of God. I'm already a child of Abraham. He said no to that. Now, look at verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, meaning they were looking for the kingdom to come, they just didn't know who the Messiah would be, they were wondering if John was the Messiah. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. No, the Messiah is going to be greater than I am. Number two, he'll be a person whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. I'm not even worthy to be a slave. Slaves were the ones who took off your sandals. So he said, I'm, compared to the Messiah, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. 
And then number three, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice John says at the beginning of verse 16, I baptize you with water, but the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Any Jew who heard that, when John said that, every Jew knew exactly what he was saying. This is kingdom language. They understood it. They knew that when the kingdom of God came, it would be a time when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, number one, and number two, God would judge fire. When the kingdom came, this is how Jews thought, when the kingdom came, two things would happen. There would be a positive benefit. God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Everyone would get eternal life. And number two, those who rejected Messiah would burn in the fire. There would be judgment. So, John baptized with water. His baptism included a call to repent. It included an offer of forgiveness. But the Messiah's baptism was different. He would usher in the kingdom. He would pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. And those that had come to him would repent, have eternal life. The rest would be judged. So the people understood that very clearly. We don't understand that today. But he would judge the rest. John says his winnowing fan is in his hand. The Messiah's winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into his barn. That would be salvation. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There'll be judgment for the rest. This is just a picture of a, a farmer who has harvested his wheat. And he had the great big pitchforks. And he would take his wheat and he would throw it up into the air. And you know there's a husk around the wheat. And then there's the kernel. And toss it into the air with a forceful toss. And the wind would blow the chaff or the husk off. And then what would fall down? That would float away. It was very light. And what would fall down would be the kernels of wheat on the threshing floor. And he said that's how people are. He says the Messiah when he comes, he'll judge. He'll determine what is chaff and what is genuine wheat. The wheat he gathers to himself. They come into the kingdom. The rest are what? Burned. Burned in the fire. John has used that concept of fire many times. Back in verse 9, the tree that doesn't have good fruit, thrown what? Into the fire. So when the Messiah comes, he will judge who has good fruit. Those who don't have good fruit, judge. Those who trust him as the Messiah and show forth evidence of salvation, he takes them into his kingdom. And then it says this, verse 18, and with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. That means if you think this preaching was tough, there's a lot more tough preaching. He made it very difficult. And he wasn't just preaching to common people. You say, well, how do you know he wasn't preaching to common people? Because he said if you have two tunics, give it to those who have what? None. So he wasn't talking just to the poor people. He was talking to people here who had means. And he said, for you people who have means, don't say, well, I've been baptized. I'm a member of the church. I, I profess faith in Christ. He says, no, let me see the evidence. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. So he preached to the elites. 
So it says in verse 18, with many other exhortations, he preached to the multitudes, even royalty, because look at verse 19. But Herod, he was preaching pretty hard. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being what? Rebuked. See, he preached to him. He rebuked him. He exhorted him. John's message just wasn't out there to the common people. He spoke to the political elites. He rebuked him by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And what we know is that Herod the Tetrarch married, stole his brother Philip's wife. In an adulterous relationship with her, she divorced her brother and married him. And John said, that's not right. You claim to be the king of the Jews. You don't even act like any Jew that I know. This is not how the people of God are supposed to act. Let me see repentance. Break off that relationship. And that's not the only thing he said. Look at the end of verse 19. And all the evils which Herod had done. And he just laid them right on out. So also this, above all, that he, that's Herod, shut John up in prison. So, Herod is antagonistic toward the gospel. He's an enemy of the gospel. And he rejects God's messenger. Now, when you look at verses 19 and 20, and you go back to verse 1, you see those names in verse 1. So if you want to know what verse 1 is about, all you have to do is read verse 20. But these are people who reject God's messenger. These are people who are antagonistic against the gospel. That's what Luke wants you to see. That's why he opens it up with those names and he closes it with one of those names or two. So, let me just make a few observations. The people in verse 1 are pictured as standing against the gospel and they represent the status quo. They don't want the boat rocked. And when you preach the real gospel that calls for real conversion, even among leaders, that rocks the boat. Mm -hmm. You say, why aren't we persecuted in America? Because we're not preaching the real gospel. Preach this gospel to the mayor of the city. Preach this gospel to the city council. Preach this gospel to the United States Senate. Call upon people to start living righteous lives. Not in general. How about specifically? You'd see how fast you're persecuted. We're not persecuted because we don't preach the real gospel. Amen. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is that this passage shows that the gospel makes demands on people. From the highest to the lowest. It confronts evil at a personal, a professional, and even a political level. It confronts evil at every single level of a person's life. Let me make a third observation. Any gospel that calls for profession of faith only, without conversion, without evidence of repentance, is not the gospel that John the Baptist preached or Jesus preached or Paul preached. Amen. It's a different gospel. Profession of faith. These people were willing to profess their faith. What did he say? You brood of vipers. 
See the response to those who want to profess faith? But they don't want to demonstrate it in their daily lives? <coughs> you are like a bunch of children of poisonous, deadly snakes. So, beware of a gospel that just calls for a profession of faith without conversion and without repentance. And then, also, any person who claims to be a child of God and doesn't show forth this proves that they're not a child of God. It's pretty simple. They're the children of the devil. Now, very interestingly to me, when we got down to verse 20, John was in prison. In verse 1, John's just launching his ministry. Now, it's obvious that Luke, in writing this little passage, has jumped far ahead. In other words, this passage is about the first time John preached. But suddenly, 20, verse 20, he has John in prison. So he's jumped ahead. Why is he doing that? Because he wants us to see that the gospel is costly. To be a, a prophet is costly. It'll cost you your freedom. It'll cost you your life. Now, next week when we look at verse 21, we're going to have Jesus launching his ministry. And we're going to see, just like John... Jesus, too, is going to have to pay with his life. Why would Jesus have to pay with his life? Why did John have to pay with his life? Because preaching the true gospel will cost you your life. If you're out there, not in, not in Sunday school here, this isn't going to cost me anything. But if I go to the halls of Congress and preach this message, do you think that they would call the Capitol Police and usher me off? you think that would happen? I think it probably would. Uh, or maybe even if I did it privately and I just went and saw the senators and the congressmen and I just sat down with them one-on-one -on -one and told them the truth of how they would have to live. Do you think the next time I wanted to make an appointment that the secretary would say, yeah, well, do you want to come on the 5th or the 6th? At noon or at 3? Or do you think they would say, uh, he really doesn't have time to see you anymore? You see, that's the real gospel. This is the frustration of an evangelism professor by the way. This is sort of a confession right here. Because what you do is you're trying to train students who will get out there and preach the true gospel, which is very costly. And you tell them to count the cost up front before they do it, because it's going to cost them a lot. And yet, when they preach the gospel, they need to preach it as good news. It shouldn't be a negative message. Entirely. It includes a positive side, salvation, but it also includes a negative side, judgment. And it causes people, when they hear that message, to stand right in the middle and have to make a decision. Do I really want to be converted and live for Christ? Or do I just want to mouth the words to get elected? Do I want to mouth the words to look respectful? And uh, it's a very difficult thing to teach students this, especially students who've been trained for years before they come to college and just preach an easy gospel, which is not good news. In fact, it's no news. The gospel they preach is bad news. When you just preach profession of faith, listen to me carefully. When you just preach profession of faith, it might sound like good news, but it's really bad news. Because John rejected that message, and he said people who only have profession of faith, they're like trees that will be thrown where? That's bad news for people. Don't preach a message that's going to condemn them. 
preach a message that's going to convert them. And so that's what we're trying to do. We'll pick up at verse 21 next week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is very uh, difficult. And yet when we read it for what it's worth, we read it simply, we read it uh, clearly, uh, we read it like it should be read, it convicts every one of us because we fall so short. And so, Lord, but it also should convict us now to say, do I, to examine our lives and say, do I indeed show forth the fruits of repentance? Oh, Lord, uh, may we be thoroughly converted to the cause of Christ and give him allegiance. Help us not to be satisfied with the status quo. Help us not to uh, give our allegiance to the wrong people, manipulate, and do the very things that John said that we should not do. Help us to be Christians that uh, serve Jesus Christ with our total being. His name.